You are listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks. Welcome to episode four of Tax Talks. This is Heidi Robson. Today's episode is about the life cycle of a tax dispute with the ATO. I'm talking to King Ten, who's not only a tax advisor, but also a tax lawyer. I started with asking King what stages a tax dispute can run through. So the typical life cycle of an income tax dispute or, or just a tax dispute with the um, ATO, you have around nine stages. Um, you start with a pre-engagement stage. Um, this is where the taxpayer has the opportunity to plan and decide on the positions that it will adopt. And if the tax office gets involved, generally, um, it will get involved directly with the taxpayer at a risk review. So that's where a questionnaire is generally sent by the tax office to the taxpayer, asking for questions to be answered. Now, if the tax office is unhappy with um, what's being de- uncovered at the risk review and they want to dig further into specific issues or just issues generally covering certain income years, then it will generally proceed to a tax audit And that can go for some time. I've seen audits going for two to three years. And at the conclusion of the audit, the tax office, um, if it considers that assessment has to be raised to to recover shortfall in taxes, then it will come by way of an assessment or multiple assessments. And those those assessments can um, be income tax assessments or assessments on penalties. Now, once the assessment is received, then the tax payer has a few options. If the taxpayer is unhappy with the assessment and wants to contest it, then they can um, either object to the assessment or if there's some sort of um, conscious administration that's being undertaken by the tax office, then they can go for um, and request the federal court or the high court to quash the assessment. At the same time, once the assessment is issued, the taxpayer needs to consider managing the tax debts that arise from the assessment. Now, of course, if the taxpayer is happy with the assessment and doesn't want to contest with it, then they can just pay the assessment when it's due and then just leave it at that time. Once an objection is um, undertaken generally, then the tax office has to decide on the objection. Um, If the decision by the tax office is they deny the objection and the taxpayer wants to contest further, then they have the option of appealing the objection decision to the Administrative Appeals Tribunal or the Federal Court of Australia as the first uh, forum. And from then on, further appeals can be undertaken by either the taxpayer or the Commissioner of Taxation, um, and it can end up with appeals going to the full federal court or an appeal to the High Court of Australia with a final resolution being provided at that stage. Then ask King where in this process he usually comes in. Majority of cases, um, I would say it's at the planning stage when we're giving advice um, and then documenting the positions as well as at the time of objection because normally the risk review and the audit will be handled by the accountant or the tax agent um, and if the tax office disagrees with the position that's been adopted then an assessment is raised and at that time we get involved because things get a bit more, um, I guess, uh, complex. Um, the reason being is 
if you're acting for the client in the advice stage, you need to determine, all right, if the tax office gets involved in an audit, mm. um, then what sort of evidence are they looking for? And if that's the sort of evidence they're looking for, then perhaps it's better to package that sort of evidence at the pre-engagement stage um, so that the information is readily available as soon as the tax office becomes active. We take a holistic approach. Um, the reason being is if you're acting for the client in the advice stage, you need to determine, all right, if the tax office gets involved in an audit, mm. um, then what sort of evidence are they looking for? And if that's the sort of evidence they're looking for, then perhaps it's better to package that sort of evidence at the pre-engagement stage um, so that the information is readily available as soon as the tax office becomes active. So there's, as mentioned before, the, the pre-engagement phase, which is essentially just where transactions are undertaken by the taxpayer. Um, the taxpayer attends to the tax obligations, for example, filing of income tax returns, GST returns, FBT returns. Um, the tax office also undertakes surveillance at this stage. For, for example, they might be uh, monitoring the public news. So if a major transaction has happened with, give an example, a private family selling a business for a significant amount of money and that comes up in the AFR, mm. the tax office might take a note of that and then uh, become involved at the later stage. Um, the tax office can also undertake data matching. For example, there's a system called the Austrack, which tracks um, foreign uh, transactions coming into Australia. So the tax office can have consideration to um, the travel transactions uncovered by Austrack and compare them to um, the income that's disclosed by the taxpayer in the tax return. It's quite common nowadays with the way um, the economy has, uh, has now taken off. There's a lot of international transactions um, and commonly you'll find gifts from relatives overseas, for example, coming in um, and then the taxpayer then doesn't declare that as income because it's a mm. gift and you might um, get a letter from the tax office asking for an explanation yes. as to why that, that position has been adopted. In terms of the way that the tax office can gather information, they have a variety of powers that's uh, given um, under legislation as well. For example, the tax office can raid an office, um, so the accountant's office for example, and it's an offence if um, that process is not facilitated by the accounting firm, and that's under Division 353 of um, Schedule 1 of the Tax Admin Act. Um, the tax office can also demand information from anyone about any tax matter and tax affairs of another taxpayer, um, or the tax office can require um, a certain person or a taxpayer to produce documents stored overseas. Now, when I say previously that you should be taking a holistic approach at times as well. This is one of those sections. So under section 264A, the tax office can require a person to produce documents stored overseas. And if that request um, is not complied with, then those documents cannot be used as defensive evidence in a hearing if subsequently assessments are then raised by the tax office. Oh, okay. And so it becomes the taxpayer's burden to prove it, to prove the assessments are excessive. Um, so in the pre-engagement stage, the taxpayer often has the luxury of time to consider the positions that they will adopt for tax purposes. So they can plan, um, they can take advice, 
um, and they can prepare for any potential engagement from the tax office. So when I say planning, I mean the taxpayer can understand the tax risks, um, obtain tax and legal advice, and seek private rulings from the tax office if that's mm. um, the appropriate manner. Um, and what that can do is minimize potential penalties that can be imposed by the commissioner. At the same time, the taxpayer can compile um, relevant evidence to support its position and intentions. Um, and this can be done through um, the use of legal professional privilege as well if the taxpayer wants the option to protect certain information. Yeah, let's, let's talk more about mm -hmm. legal professional privilege. Yes. Um, so legal professional privilege is to be contrasted with accountant's concession, which the tax office has come out and said they respect as well. Although under law, if they, for example, demand information, then information that's subject to accountant's concession is generally not protected, um, where else information subject to legal professional privilege would be protected. Um, so legal professional privilege um, is useful um, for a taxpayer to keep secret uh, what they consider should be secured. It survives the tax office rating powers and it's supposed to protect a person's access to the justice system by enabling that person to disclose to their legal advisors um, without the risk of those communications being disclosed to others. And uh, the important part of it is it's the client's privilege and not the lawyer's or the other um, advisors. So what, what, does that, um, what does that mean? So the lawyer can't claim legal professional privilege to protect his own standing or why well, is this distinction it so the, important? The privilege is the client's which means that it's up to the oh, client. So the, the client decides whether yeah. something is disclosed yeah, yeah, or not. Okay. Yeah, the client. Yeah. Um, at the end of the day, um, the client can decide whether to waive the privilege on certain information that's protected. Mm. Um, so for legal professional privilege to apply, um, The communication must be made in the course of a professional relationship of the lawyer and client, be confidential, um, for the dominant purpose of seeking legal advice mm -hmm. or providing legal advice. Um, the one thing to note is legal professional privilege can apply to um, work that's being done by third parties, so accountants, for example. If the third party has been engaged um, for the dominant purpose of assisting the client in obtaining legal advice. Is it a fair comment to say that when the going gets tough, the accountant's concession isn't really... Yeah, the, the tax really, office has the really choice. Um, so where there's significant tax fraud, and that information that um, is it's key to the raising of the assessment is subject to accountant's concession, but not legal professional privilege, then the tax office has the ability to say, we're not going to respect that. Whereas the uh, legal professional privilege mm -hmm. is really watertight. Yes, it starts with the client. So the client can use accountants and get that work protected under legal professional privilege. That's, that's the example. Um, so where, for example, where the um, lawyer has been engaged by the client and for the purpose of the lawyer providing legal advice to the client, they need certain things to be done by various parties such as accountants, mm. then that sort of work that's created by the accountant can be clothed under mm. the legal professional privilege. But so it would be difficult for an accountant to kind of put his entire work and his entire tax advice under the umbrella of LPP. Yeah, because it's only for the dominant purpose mm. of providing legal advice. Yes.
but um, for for the client, I guess uh, what's attractive in that instance is at least you get some sort of protection than none at all. Have you had this that um, accountants buddy up with you to get under your LPP umbrella? Yes, um, a common example would be through voluntary disclosures. So the client might come to the lawyer first and say, look, I've got unreported income for, let's just say, 10, 20 years. I've been a tax resident for that period of time, but I haven't reported my income and assets. Hmm. I'm thinking of doing a voluntary disclosure. And before the tax office finds me, I want to get all this information together. So I want to protect that information so I can actually use it as voluntary disclosure. So the lawyer might then be tasked to engage an accountant to help that lawyer hmm. um, advise the client on the tax implications. So the accountant would do the calculations on the omitted or unreported income and calculate the estimated tax payable. So all of that, if you know, if it's done properly, will be, will be uh, protected under legal professional privilege. Mm-hmm. So once there is legal professional privilege, um, the, the key consideration for the client is, of course, um, don't waive it unless it's intended. The, the client can waive legal professional privilege through a variety of means. Um, it can be waived impolitely um, if the gist, substance, or effect, or purpose and reasoning of the advice has been disclosed to the commissioner, for example, that comes from a case called Croc. Uh, in 2015. So if you have a letter of advice that you've received from your lawyers and you want to keep that privilege, then you have to be careful about disclosing so much of it that essentially you've disclosed it or to the commissioner and it makes sense for the commissioner to then get a copy of that um, letter of advice. Oh, okay. So that's that's one way it can be finally waived. So, so in, in this case, Croc versus FCT, Mr. Croc disclosed so much that the commission yeah, turned around the, and said, the, can we please see the letter because you told us everything yeah, anyway. The court essentially held that the um, letter, the gist, substance or effect or purpose and reasoning, those, those are the exact words of the advice, um, has been essentially given over to the commission that it makes sense for the commission to get a, a hold of that letter. We then took a brief detour and spoke about backdating documents. Tax fraud is a crime and backdating documents, you know, representing to the tax office, uh, this document was signed on 30th of June 2016 when it was actually now signed on 1st of July 2017, for example. Backdating documents can be tax fraud um, and it's a crime. There's, there's an article in the Sydney Morning Herald and you find news of um, people being involved um, in backdating documents, uh, in creating papers, which is not true, um, and that's been held as fraud and um, a crime as well. What can be done instead is if there was an intention at that time, you can create a document today to record that intention. So if a minute um, wasn't created at the time of the meeting, um, but the meeting happened, then you can actually create the minutes today as documenting what had happened at that time. So in that way, you've got on paper um, recording things that has happened in the past without actually backdating. Mm. Of course, you know, you can actually create documents today reflecting what has happened um, at Any in time. the past, mm. you know, even if the tax office is involved. Um, 
quite commonly, for example, when the tax audit involves some taxpayers just don't have all the paperwork together, um, you can get statutory declarations from relevant people that were that were actually involved to say what has actually happened at that time because nothing otherwise exists on paper, and that can be used as evidence to support the taxpayer's position. So this was our little detour about backdating, and then we went back to talk about the stages of the tax cycle. So after pre-engagement, generally, um, and I'm saying this typically, the tax office, uh, they get involved through a risk review. It looks harm harmless, and then the taxpayer just has to answer those questions um, and then get back to the tax office. So normally it's, it's a quite a, a short questionnaire, um, and that's just the start of the tax office starting to investigate certain issues and to gain comfort. And if they don't gain comfort, then they can deepen the investigation by commencing a tax audit. A risk review doesn't always have to go to an audit. A risk review can also immediately result in an amended assessment. Yes, um, although typically the tax and the tax office has come out saying that they will fall, they have procedures set down that normally you'll go from risk review to audit as opposed to um, a risk review straight to assessment. Oh, okay. Um, you know, I have seen cases happen where it goes straight to an assessment without any risk review audit mm. because the tax office has been monitoring a particular taxpayer for some time and think that there's some really... Well, it, it might end in a risk review and it might end in an audit um, yes. without any assessments being raised. Yeah, any amended assessment. Yeah, yeah. Or assessments or amended assessments because the taxpayer might not have lodged any tax returns at all. Oh, okay. In yeah. which case, it'll be an original assessment. Yeah. Um, if the tax... If the taxpayer has lodged um, returns, then there will be an amended assessment. After the assessment, then the taxpayer generally has a few choices. Um, if the taxpayer doesn't want to contest the assessment, then pay that's it the on end. its due date, yeah. and that's the end. Um, if the taxpayer does want to um, contest the assessment, then it can object to the assessment. Um, and that will bring it to the next phase. Um, it can also approach the federal court, the high court, uh, for an exercise of power to quash the assessment um, on the basis of conscious maladministration, for example. But you always first have to object against the assessment. No, that, that's just an avenue. So um, objection is an avenue to defeat the assessment. Uh, another avenue will be um, to ask the courts to quash the assessments. You have to ask the courts to exercise the power. So it's the federal court mm -hmm. or the High Court of Australia um, to quash the assessment on the basis that there's uh, been conscious maladministration by the tax office, so it's some kind of bad faith. Um, mm -hmm. Normally, most assessments go through an objection. Yes, because yeah. that, the, quashing the assessment directly through the courts, that would be a very unusual avenue to take. It's, yeah, and you need that sort of bad faith to be present. Yes. So if the tax office has done everything by the book and correctly, um, going through your risk review, going through the audit, issuing a position paper, keeping the taxpayer informed and information gathering has been done in the proper way, then there's no merits for you to go to the High Court or, or the Federal Court and ask for quashing the assessment, in which case you're focusing on the tax issues and you would normally go through the objection. I see. Have you ever have you ever been involved with the quashing of an assessment, given that it is would be very very rare? Yeah, I, I've seen it happening. Oh really? I've seen mm -hmm. it happen before. Very rarely it gets off, um, simply because um, following the, the decision in futures, um, the bar is set quite high. 
tax debt management is one aspect that should be taken care of as soon as an assessment is raised, uh, regardless of whether the tax payer accepts the assessment or wishes to contest it. Um, of course, if the taxpayer wishes to accept the assessment and not contest it, then they have to figure out, well, do I pay the whole lot in one go? Do I have the money? Or should I enter into some sort of payment arrangement with the commissioner? If they decide to object against the assessment, for example, to contest it in other means, they still need to um, pay. pay or come to some sort of tax debt arrangement. Oh, okay. If you do decide to object against the assessment, there's something called a 50-50 payment arrangement that the commissioner um, has the discretion to offer. Um, so that's a payment of 50% of the primary tax, which is much lower than the actual 50% of the tax bill because the primary tax would not include your interest charges and yes. penalties. So yeah, the system that we have in place is um, it follows this theme called pay now, fight later which catches off a lot of taxpayers off guard because they think if I don't agree with the assessment, I shouldn't, I would be, just, paying I shouldn't be paying for it, right? So I should just object. Um, but then you have the debt recovery team, the tax office, asking for the full amount. Yes. And if you're not managing that properly with um, the commissioner, then the commissioner might be asking for the full amount and they can seek a judgment debt against the taxpayer, um, then enforce that judgment debt so the taxpayer can find itself in all sorts of problems just because of the assessments. We then use the example that there's an assessment for 10 million, the taxpayer enters into a 50-50 arrangement with the ATO and pays 5 million. Would the taxpayer still accrue interest on the other 5 million he or she didn't pay? Or is that then put on hold? If there's an assessment for $10 million, then I presume not all of it is primary tax. Um, you have your interest and then your penalties, for example. So the taxpayer, um, if it doesn't wish to accrue any interest charges, it will just pay the full $10 million. Um, but if it enters into an arrangement with the tax office through, for example, a 50-50 payment arrangement, that can minimize the interest charges. Um, the only thing that I want to really say about 50-50 payment arrangement is it's a discretion offered by the tax office. So the tax office doesn't actually have to grant the arrangement. And in the, P in the PSLA, you'll find that the tax office has actually come out and say, we'll give it to taxpayers who have had a good compliance history, for example. So if the objection is denied by the commissioner, then taxpayer, um, in terms of the next step, that's available to, to defeat the assessment will be an appeal. And that can be an appeal to the Administrative Appeals Tribunal or the Federal Court as the first forum. Yes. And w when do you decide to go to the AAT or the Federal Court? Well, they both offer different things. So with the AAT, for example, um, the rules of evidence would not apply. Um, whereas the federal court, you have the rules of evidence for the Evidence Act applying, which means that if you have a taxpayer that has a, a case where it's mostly factual issues, you might want to go through to the AAT so that you can actually tender all that evidence yes. more easily. And at the same time, um, the AAT can um, withhold the taxpayer's name. So if privacy is a concern, then that can be done through the AAT. Whereas if you go to the federal court, there's no... Um, that the court cannot just withhold the name of the taxpayer. Oh, okay. So if you've got a celebrity, for example, that 
don't want people knowing about what, what's happened to the tax affairs, you might go to the AAT, just withhold the name. Where do you rather go? Oh, it depends on the case. Um, AAT matters are generally less costly to run for the, for the client um, because it's less formality. So that, that may be an appeal for the client. At the same time, the AAT cannot award costs, whereas the federal court can. Um, so sometimes it, it is gray area. Um, it just depends on the circumstances. So if you're really certain of your position and you're very confident that you will win, it might be better to go to the uh, to the federal court because then they can award your legal yeah, costs to the yeah, other exactly. side. Uh, now, having said that, that's if you're comfortable and you're certain that you'll win the federal court and litigation comes with uncertainty. Um, now, if you decide to go to federal court, it might be because um, you're happy with the rules of evidence applying because your matter might be more of a, a technical issue. So this was a walk through the nine stages of a tax dispute with the ATO. In the next episode, episode 5, Robert Campbell will talk about the tax residency of individuals and companies. Until then, thank you for listening. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.